This morning I'm going to ask you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of John. We're going to be in the book of John, John chapter number 18. And uh, John chapter number 18, much like our previous message on this topic, is going to be uh, a launching point. We're going to come back to John chapter number 18 and read other verses throughout the course of the message. But I want us to notice John chapter number 18. We want to begin reading in verse number 12. We're going to read verses 12 through 14. John chapter number 18, verses 12 through 14. Then the band and the captain and officers of the Jews took Jesus and bound him and led him away to Annas first, for he was father-in-law to Caiaphas, which was the high priest that same year. Now Caiaphas was he which gave counsel to the Jews that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. The title of the message this morning is The Murder of Jesus his illegitimate trial. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time we could be in your house today. Lord, I pray that our hearts are right with you. Uh, I pray that as we sang those words about your marvelous love, that it, did, that it did speak to our hearts and that we are thankful this morning that we know you, that we love you because you first loved us. Lord, as we think today and turn our attention to the the topic at hand, the murder of Jesus, and specifically this trial that he was forced to undergo. I pray that you'd help us, Lord, to approach the, the message today, not with the intent just to uh, gain knowledge that would uh, be of no value or of no use, but that we would see in this particular portion of the murder of Jesus, this trial, that uh, we would understand all that Jesus went through and subjected himself to on our behalf. And Lord, I just pray that today as we uh, look into your word, you would speak to hearts and you would save, you would draw near to you as only you can. Lord, help us to be the people that you want us to be. We give you all praise, honor, and glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The murder of Jesus, his illegitimate trial. The Salem witch trials the trial of Lizzie Borden, the Scopes monkey trial, the Charles Manson and his family trial, O.J. Simpson, Casey Anthony. All of these trials at one point were deemed the trial of the century. Well, they may well have been, and they're certainly notorious in their own right, but Jesus' trial, the trial of Jesus Christ, was not just a trial of the century, it was the trial of the ages. And it was an illegitimate trial. The word illegitimate means unlawful or illegal. This was an illegitimate trial that Jesus was forced to undergo. And it was a trial that would ultimately end in the murder of Jesus. Now we're in the midst of a short series of messages dealing with the murder of Jesus. I mentioned in our first message two weeks ago that this series would cover at least three different parts of the murder of Jesus. Two weeks ago in the first message we looked at the murder of Jesus in light of his illegal arrest. This morning, as I mentioned, we're going to begin considering the illegitimate trial of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then when we're done with this particular portion of our study, lastly, we will move into the inhumane sentence that was carried out as a result of Jesus' conviction in this illegitimate trial. Now, this morning, our thoughts are on Jesus' illegitimate trial. And I want to say that there are really two phases to Jesus' trial. And I do want to warn you this morning that this, this is a very complicated topic. We need to be engaged and have our thinking caps on this morning. Pay attention to the Word because there's much detail given in Scripture and there's much that uh, causes us to uh, think about this trial in many different lights. And so... I say that there are really two phases to Jesus' trial. 
There's his trial that we're going to begin looking at this morning that was before the Jews and the Jewish court system. But then after that, Jesus really undergoes another phase of the trial. We might even call it a second trial, if you will. A trial before Pontius Pilate. Both of these trials were illegitimate trials. Now I say this morning that we can't really appreciate Jesus' sacrifice for us unless we understand all that He subjected Himself to and all that He willingly went through, and that includes His illegitimate trial. Now this morning, as we venture into looking at Jesus' illegitimate trial, I want us to note that there are two main reasons that the trial that Jesus was subjected to was an illegitimate trial. First of all, this main reason. And by the way, when I say two main reasons, you understand there are many reasons that it was an illegitimate trial, but we're going to we're going to categorize those many reasons into two main reasons. First of all, this reason, this main reason that Jesus' trial was illegit- illegitimate, the trial was conducted to continue the conspiracy plot. That's a fact. We'll talk more about that here in just a few moments. And then secondly, the trial was illegitimate for this main reason. The trial circumvented the Jewish court procedure. Now, I will let you know that this morning we are only going to look at the first main reason Lord willing, we will look at the second main reason next Sunday. And so, we're, we're, we're focusing our thoughts this morning on the murder of Jesus, His illegitimate trial, and really the first, the first main reason that His trial was illegitimate is that the trial was conducted to continue the conspiracy plot. So let's think about that this morning. This trial that Jesus was subjected to was illegitimate in every way. There is no way that it could pass the appellate process today. It was a, a, a trial that was conducted, first of all, only to continue the conspiracy plot. Now, a few weeks ago, we looked at the uh, illegal arrest of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you recall, Jesus was arrested without any formal charges being brought against Him. And He was arrested because the Jewish leaders had gathered together and they had conspired to somehow bring Jesus before the court system and have Him convicted of some crime yet to be named that would be worthy of death. And so this trial, this illegitimate trial, is a continuation of this conspiracy plot. Now, as we think about the trial conducted to continue the conspiracy plot, I want us to note, and again, I'm warning you, we're going to get into a lot of detail this morning, so um, if if you intend to check out, just go ahead and check out now. You'll save some brain cells, but if you really want to see what Jesus was subjected to, then stay with me and bear with me. I trust that the Lord will hold our attention on it. Now, when we think about this trial that was conducted to continue the conspiracy plot, I want us to note that the trial was conducted because it was predetermined, it was predetermined that Jesus would be found guilty and sentenced for a capital crime. This was, this was predetermined before the trial ever began. If you were facing charges today in our country, wouldn't it be good for you to know that, yeah, you know, there is still that, that, uh, that principle that we operate on, it's a legal principle that somebody who is charged with the crime is what? Innocent until proven guilty. I mean, that's a major tenet, uh, a, a, a foundation of our legal system. How confident would you be if you knew that the judge that was sitting on your trial is the one that, ha- that had come and arrested you, and he or she was going to determine what you'd be charged with after the trial started, And it was already assured that whatever charge you were charged with, you were going to get convicted, and you were going to get sentenced to the death penalty. You are going to get sentenced to death. Well, come on, that would be an illegitimate trial. Folks, 
That is exactly what Jesus Christ experienced. This trial was conducted to continue this conspiracy plot that had been hatched. It was predetermined that Jesus would be found guilty of and sentenced for a capital crime. Now, when we think about this, the sentence uh, that formed the basis for the plot was what? Death. Death. Now, we looked at this conspiracy in detail during the first message when we looked at the illegal arrest of Jesus. But now I want you to notice a little bit further, and this ties in with the verses that we read this morning, and particularly John 18 and verse number 14. Let's read that again before we turn uh, to, a little, uh, to a few earlier verses in the book of John. But notice John 18, verse number 14. Now Caiaphas was he, or Caiaphas, however you choose to pronounce it, was he which gave counsel to the Jews that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. Now, Caiaphas was not, was not recommending this based on spiritual reasons. In other words, Caius wasn't saying, Caiaphas wasn't saying, you know, it would be good that, that one man who is without sin should die for, for the people so that they could obtain forgiveness with God. That's not what he's talking about. He's saying that, man, we should find one guy that we can put to death, and that guy's Jesus. That, that's what he's saying. Now, look with me in John chapter number 11 for the particulars about what is being referenced here. In John chapter number 11, notice here, beginning in verse number 45. John chapter number 11 beginning in verse number 45. Now remember, the verses that we're about to read are immediately after the Lord had raised Lazarus. Okay. Now watch John chapter 11, verse 45. Then many of the Jews which came to Mary and had seen the things which Jesus did, believed on Him. But some of them went their ways to the Pharisees and told them what things Jesus had done. Then gathered the chief priests and the Pharisees a council and said, What do we? For this man doeth many miracles. If we let him thus alone, all men will believe on him. And the Romans shall come and take away both our place and nation. Now stop there for a moment. What, what are they talking about? There, so you got to remember that these Jewish leaders, right, the chief priests, the Pharisees, and this council, which, by the way, we're going to discover a little bit later on, forms the basis for the great Sanhedrin, they did not understand and they did not want to believe that Jesus Christ was the Messiah that should come and would die for the sins of his people. What they feared was that Jesus was coming as an earthly king and he was going to set up an earthly kingdom. And because Jesus was coming to set up an earthly kingdom, the Roman authorities, because remember, who ruled the Jews at this time? The Roman authorities. They were under Roman rule. They were under Roman servitude, right? Or bondage, if you will. So, so the religious leaders were afraid that in Jesus coming as a king to set up an earthly kingdom, that the Roman authorities would then... Uh, take this out on the Jews and come and squelch this insurrection, if you will, and that they would put the Jews in further uh, and more severe servitude and bondage. That's what verse number 48 is saying. It, read it again. If we let him uh, thus alone, all men will believe on him, and the Romans shall come and take away both our place and nation. Now look at verse 49. And one of them named Caiaphas being the high priest that same year, said unto them, Ye know nothing at all, uh, nor consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people, and that the whole nation perish not. And this spake he not of himself, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus should die for that nation. Now, keep in mind, folks, he's not talking about Jesus dying as the Lamb of God, he's talking about Jesus being murdered to satisfy uh, the Roman authorities and to somehow, uh, in his twisted mind, make it out that, well, he's, what he's really doing is he's saving the whole Jewish nation. And I'm going to say to you that he had further selfish thoughts in mind because 
Caiaphas, I firmly believe, had it out for Jesus for personal reasons. And we'll talk about that here in just a little bit. And so, we're talking about this trial that was conducted to continue the conspiracy plot. That's the ma- the first main reason why Jesus' trial was illegitimate. It was predetermined that Jesus would be found guilty of and sentenced for a capital crime, something that was worthy of death. The sentence that formed the basis for the plot was death. It was already determined. They wanted to kill Jesus, the religious leaders, in order to save the nation from the threat of violence and destruction at the hands of Roman authorities. That's what they're reasoning in their mind. Now, notice here that the sentence that formed the basis for the plot was certainly death, but it's also important for us to think about the sequence of events, the sequence of events that took place. Now, we discovered uh, in our first message on this, in Jesus' illegal arrest, that he's in the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, Judas has conspired together with these religious leaders to come and, and betray Jesus. They come out with a band of Roman soldiers. They come out with swords and staves and torches, and it's night. And they come out and they arrest uh, Jesus illegally uh, from the Garden of Gethsemane. And so they take him away quickly and hastily. And I want you to notice how quickly the, the events start to happen. Now when we talk about the sequence of events that, that are part of Jesus' trial, it's important for you also to know that, and, and by the way, I'm going to give you the references here in each of the four Gospels. It's important for you to know that not all of the Gospel authors record the events chronologically. Okay, It's important for you to know that. Because if you don't, you're going to run into problems trying to reconcile the sequence of events. And I'll give you an example. For instance, Luke does not record things uh, chronologically as they happen. Luke, Luke says some things and then he goes back and then he says something else that happened earlier. And you've got to compare Scripture with Scripture. You've got to be a good Bible student and do your legwork and your due diligence to really understand this. And so the references as to the sequence of events, and we're going to look at some, some verses from each of these, sequ- of, of these gospel accounts uh, detailing the sequence of events. They're these. You can jot these down. Matthew chapter 26, verses 57 through 68. And then Matthew chapter 27 and verse number 1. Mark chapter number 14, verses 53 through 65. In Mark chapter 15 and verse number 1. Luke chapter 22, verse number 54. And then verses 63 through 71. And then Luke chapter 23, verses 1 and 2. John chapter number 18, verses 12 through 14. Verses number 19 through 24. And verse number 28. These are all of the passages in the Gospels that show us in detail the sequence of events after the illegal arrest of Jesus leading into and during his illegitimate trial. Now, after Jesus' illegal uh, arrest, where they grab him in the Garden of Gethsemane, they bring him in, the first thing that happens is that they lead him away bound to Annas. We already read this in John chapter number 18. Let's read it again in John chapter number 18. Verses 12 and 13. In John chapter 18, verses 12 and 13, these form the basis for our text verses this morning. Then the band and the captain and officers of the Jews took Jesus and bound him and led him away to Annas first, for he was father-in-law to Caiaphas, which was the high priest that same year. Now, I will tell you that there is disagreement among Bible commentators and Bible preachers as to all that happened while Jesus was with Annas. And I'll, I'll, I won't go into detail, but if you want to talk over lunch, I'll give you some examples of some, some well-known men uh, that, that place Jesus being questioned by Annas uh, as detailed in one of the Gospels. Um, and then there's other men like John Gill that don't agree with that, and I tend to agree with Gill in this case. Now, why would he be taken to Annas? Annas is not the high priest. Why would he be taken to Annas? Well, he was taken to Annas, I believe, 
to lend credibility to what they were about to do. They wanted Annas to be, they wanted this to appear to the people as though they're doing this the right way. They're bringing him to this respected man. And by the way, Annas was a man of power, prestige, and respect in Jerusalem. In fact, 20 years earlier, Annas had been the high priest uh, of the Jews. Because he was the high priest since that time and the, remain, the, the subsequent 20 years, he actually came to control the office of the high priest. Five of his sons had already served as high priest. The man who is high priest now, Caiaphas, is who? Annas' son-in-law. In fact, there are multiple passages in the New Testament. One of them, Luke chapter 3, verse 2, that we're not going to turn to, but you can write it down, where Caiaphas is actually, or Annas is actually referred to as the high priest. And so there's no doubt that they bring Jesus here to Annas to lend credibility to what's happening and also to begin thinking about what actual charge are they going to bring before Jesus in this trial because again wouldn't it be crazy if there was a trial and the person didn't have any idea what they were charged with in fact the whole reason for an arraignment you hear the term arraignment we talked about this during the uh, illegal arrest of Jesus the whole reason for an arraignment is so that the charged individual can have the charges formally read to them so that they know what they're being charged with this never happened with Jesus right and so they bring him, first of all, to Annas. Then secondly, we're talking about the sequence of events as they're continuing to further this plot and this conspiracy to kill Jesus, right? So they, they then lead Jesus away from Annas and Annas's house, his palace. They then send uh, Jesus to Caiaphas, and particularly Caiaphas's palace, and guess who happened to be over for dinner at Caiaphas's palace? The Sanhedrin. The great Sanhedrin. By the way, we're going to talk more about the Sanhedrin here in just a little bit. The great Sanhedrin. But you know how many members there were in the great Sanhedrin? 71. You ever have a dinner party and just, hey, I'm going to just have some people over and you got 71 people over. There's a reason they got 71 people. There's a reason that they're all there, right? And so Annas sends Caiaphas, or sends Jesus to Caiaphas's palace. Now again, you got to understand the way things are constructed. It's not like they all get in a caravan, at, you know, or a transport van, and they got Jesus in handcuffs, and they're taking him to some other location. Literally, Caiaphas's residence in the palace was across the courtyard from Annas's residence. You'll begin to see this a little bit more clearly if you actually read the accounts of when Peter is warming himself. And where's Peter at? He's at the palace of the high priest. And Peter sees them taking Jesus from Annas' residence to Caiaphas's residence. Now, listen to this. In Matthew chapter 26, verses 57 and 58. In Matthew chapter 26, verses 57 and 58. And they that had laid hold on Jesus led him away to Caiaphas the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were assembled. That's important. Verse 58. But Peter followed him afar off unto the high priest's palace, and went in and sat with the servants to see the end. Now what do we take away from this in Matthew's account? First of all, they are clearly at Caiaphas's palace. That's where they're at. And secondly, it's very clear that the great Sanhedrin is assembled. You know why that's clear? It's clear because in Matthew 26, verse 57, it says uh, that they led Jesus away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were assembled. We'll talk more about that in a moment. It's very clear that the great Sanhedrin is not assembled where they're supposed to be assembled. They're assembled at Caiaphas's palace. Now, the actual high priest, the actual high priest uh, was Caiaphas. He was the high priest. He had held the office uh, for over two decades. He was a corrupt man. 
he was a man that was uh, that was really uh, in in bed, if you will, with the money changers in the temple. You remember when Jesus went into the temple and started overthrowing the tables and uh, said, "Man, you've made my father's house, which is a house of prayer, a den of thieves." You know who was affected by that? Caiaphas. Because who would have been in charge of the temple? Caiaphas, the high priest. And he's allowing this to go on. And there's no doubt, come on folks, you know how it works. There's no doubt that Caiaphas is getting kickbacks and money from this. And he's becoming very financially stable. Now why is that important? It's important for two reasons. First of all, because in in biblical days, in New Testament days, uh, how was the high priest supposed to be appointed? supposed to be a Levite, right? And there's strict guidelines in the Old Testament as to how the high priest was supposed to be appointed. You know how the high priest was appointed in biblical days? It's appointed by the Roman authorities. You know how the Roman authorities determined who was going to be high priest? By bribes and political favors. Now, now it begins to become clear how Caiaphas has been the high priest for so long and how he attained to this position. Oh, he happens to be the son-in-law of Anna. Now, why would Caiaphas have a problem with Jesus? I mentioned a little bit earlier that there was some personal animosity that Caiaphas probably had with Jesus. Why would that be the case? Caiaphas is making money off of the money changers. Jesus comes in and says, you know, you're not doing this. This is my father's house. So Caiaphas is personally affected by Jesus. So you got Caiaphas personally holding animus toward Jesus. Saying to the people, we got to have one person put to death. It'll save our nation. Oh, and it just so happens to be Jesus of Nazareth. So they send Jesus from Annas to Caiaphas, the high priest. Then what happens, we're talking about the sequence of events in this trial of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then after Caiaphas is done with Jesus. And by the way, you'll notice that we haven't really gotten any details as to what's happening while Jesus is before Caiaphas. That's coming, if not today, probably next week when we talk about how that the Roman judicial procedure was circumvented, thus further making Jesus' trial illegitimate. Now, from Caiaphas, what happens is the Sanhedrin takes a brief break. Remember, They arrest Jesus at night. They bring Jesus to Annas first. Then they take him to Caiaphas' palace. Now we are into, no doubt, probably three or four in the morning. Okay? So then what happened... By the way, I just have to say that if I ever have to argue a case at trial or three three or four in the morning in St. Clair County, I'm quitting. Just just so you know, I'm done. I'm not, you know, I've done my 24-hour duty in the military... I also am available at all hours on this job. I'm not arguing a case at four in the morning, okay? Uh, and, and Jim, don't put this on the sermon audio. I'm kidding. I'm just joking about that. So, so now it's three or four in the morning. Caiaphas is done questioning Jesus. What they do then is they take a brief break and they assemble again a few hours later, but now they assemble not in Caiaphas's house, but now they assemble in the temple. And why did they assemble in the temple? Because now they are going to have the formal trial, if you can call it that, of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now listen to this. I want to give you a couple of passages to prove this. Notice Luke chapter 22, verse number 66. In Luke chapter 22, verse number 66, the Bible says, And as soon as it was day, the elders of the people and the chief priests and the scribes came together and led him into their council. So the night has passed. They are now into the next day. The great Sanhedrin, which by the way is the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, they then lead him into this great Sanhedrin. Mark records the events this way. In Mark chapter 15 and verse number 1, the Bible reads, And straightway in the morning the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. So literally now they have moved from Caiaphas's palace to the temple. Why is that important? Well, it's important because, first of all, when this trial began, it began 
with Annas and then Caiaphas, and there's no legal precedent for that. What would you think if you said, you know, if you're on trial for your life, and they say, okay, and your family wants to come to the trial, and they say, well, what courtroom is this trial going to be in? And they say, well, it's not. It's going to be at the judge's house. Well, can you fathom that? I'm trying to get you to understand how ludicrous and illegitimate these events were. Now, the Sanhedrin, and I'm referring to them as the great Sanhedrin, it'll become clear to you here in just a moment, they were not to meet at Caiaphas's palace. Now, all the trials that were before the great Sanhedrin were supposed to be public trials. And as I just mentioned in my crude illustration, when you're on trial and your family wants to come and see the trial, they would find out what courtroom the trial is going to be in. Well, the great Sanhedrin met in one place only. They always Their, their only location was in Jerusalem. They were, they, they were assembled always in one room in the temple and it was called the chamber of hewn stones it's also referred to as the hall of judgment and in the hebrew it was referred to as the lishkat hagiset that's where the 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 great sanhedrin assembled and why are they now assembling where they're supposed to assemble because they want this to appear legitimate now they're now they're going to have this open trial when they've already had this trial. And so we see, we see we're talking here about the trial conducted to continue the conspiracy plot. It was predetermined that Jesus was going to be found guilty and sentenced for a capital crime. Uh, the sentence to form the basis for the, for the plot was death. We looked at the sequence of events. And then thirdly, I want you to notice during this illegitimate trial, they solicited false witnesses. Now there's a very interesting rule of uh, uh, of evidence with the Jews. And that is that if you had two, at least two witnesses, you could actually convict somebody not only of a crime, but of a capital offense. In fact, we're not going to read this in Matthew or in, in Deuteronomy chapter number 17 and verse number 6, but you can read that on your own, Deuteronomy 17 and verse number 6. There is actual guidance as to those witnesses that would, that would testify and convict somebody of, uh, of a crime worthy of death and those witnesses also were, be the, were supposed to be the first ones that were to participate in the, the stoning of the individual condemned to death, right? But I want you now to turn with me in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter number 19. We're talking about the Jews here and the Jewish leaders and really the great Sanhedrin soliciting false witnesses so that they can continue this plot and convict Jesus of a capital offense. Notice Deuteronomy chapter number 19, verses 15 through 19. In Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse number 15. One witness not, shall not rise up against a man for any iniquity or for any sin, in any sin that he sinneth, at the mouth of two witnesses or at the mouth of three witnesses, shall the matter be established. And so it is a Jewish rule of evidence that there must be two witnesses. You know what was supposed to happen? If there was false witnesses, read further in Deuteronomy 19. In verse number 16, If a false witness rise up against any man to testify against him that which is wrong, then both the men between whom the controversy is shall stand before the Lord, before the priests and the judges, which shall be in those days. And the judges shall make diligent inquisition. And behold, if the witness be a false witness and hath testified falsely against his brother, then shall ye do unto him as he had brought thought to have done unto his brother so shall thou put away evil from among you now let me ask you this we haven't read it yet but you know the account they're seeking false witnesses against jesus they're soliciting false witnesses and they actually have false witnesses that come and testify and they can't agree on their testimony and their account and so it's clear that they're false witnesses do you think that the jews put them to death no they didn't even have the power to put anybody to death at this point. That was already turned over to the Romans. So you, you see how all of this, every bit of it stinks. It's an illegitimate trial. They are seeking false witnesses to somehow charge and convict. By the way, remember, Jesus hasn't even been charged with a crime yet. 
But they're seeking these false witnesses to put this man to death. Notice Matthew chapter number 26. Matthew chapter 26, verses 59 through 61. Matthew chapter 26, verses 59 through 61. Now the chief priests and elders and all the council sought false witness against Jesus to put him to death. But found none. Yea, though many false witnesses came, yet found they none. At the last came two false witnesses and said, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. Well, Jesus said that, but they're, mis, they're, they're uh, misquoting and, and, and applying a meaning that Jesus did not intend. What temple was Jesus talking about when he said that? His body. He was talking about the fact that he would be crucified and they would rise again after three days, and they're making it out to sound like he's some seditious guy that wants to destroy the temple and blaspheme. They're making him out to be a blasphemer because who could build the temple in three days? Only God could do that. And so they're 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 trumping up these charges against Jesus, seeking these false witnesses, and it was all done because it was predetermined that Jesus would be found guilty of a capital crime and he would be sentenced to death for that capital crime. Now notice secondly, and I'm hurrying along here. I warned you. I told you there's a lot in this. Okay. Secondly, I want you to notice that Jesus' trial was an illegitimate trial for this first main reason because the trial was conducted to continue a conspiracy plot. And notice, not only was it predetermined that Jesus would be found guilty and sentenced for a capital crime, but secondly, this is proven in the selection of the court of jurisdiction. It's proven that the conspiracy plot was what was driving all of this, thus making it an illegitimate trial. Now, we, we use a lot of terms uh, in my field that sometimes I think we're, we think people are aware of, and I use the term jurisdiction. Jurisdiction. Jurisdiction is a legal term that simply refers to the power of a court to exercise its power over individuals to resolve cases and issue orders that fall under their purview. That's jurisdiction. In other words, if you commit a crime in St. Clair County, Madison County cannot come and arrest you and try you for this crime in Madison County. Why? They don't have jurisdiction. It occurred in St. Clair County. Now, I want to ask you this. Since there had been no charges filed against Jesus, how would they know which court would have jurisdiction? Let me illustrate this. And again, I use St. Clair County because I, I'm familiar with St. Clair County. Um, I know Jim and Tina, you're in Madison County. It's a little bit different. But here in St. Clair County, if you get a traffic ticket, what courtroom do you go to? You go to courtroom 108. Okay, that's they handle all traffic and misdemeanors. If you are if you are charged with a misdemeanor domestic violence offense, what courtroom do you go to? You go to 305. All misdemeanor domestic violence offenses ha are handled in 305. If you have a civil case and you're suing somebody, right, for a property issue or something like that, which courtroom are you going to go to? Well, all of those are handled in courtrooms 402 through 405. If you ever find yourself in courtroom 407, 408, 409, or 410, you got a problem. Because those are felony criminal courtrooms. That is where we spend our day. In the felony criminal courtrooms. So if you get a summons saying you must appear in courtroom 407, you know that that court has jurisdiction over you because you've committed a felony offense and you're going to have to answer in that courtroom. Now, why is any of this important? It's all important because we have to understand how the Jewish court system was devised. There were two tracks of Jewish courts, civil and criminal. The civil courts handled matters like property and monetary disputes. There was a court of three judges, and they handled your everyday litigation. Okay? But then there was the criminal track. And in the criminal track, there were two primary courts. 
the first primary court is referred to as the Lesser Sanhedrin. Now, there were many Lesser Sanhedrins. In fact, every city had a Lesser Sanhedrin, and that Lesser Sanhedrin consisted of 23 judges. They would judge matters that were criminal in nature, and they had the power to excommunicate somebody from the Jewish religion, and they also could uh, hand out corporal punishment uh, by what you might know as scourging. And that was a very heinous and it's a very brutal uh, it's a brutal punishment. We're going to see that when we look at what Jesus went through. Though That was the lesser Sanhedrin. Now, no charges filed against Jesus. They just come and arrest him. They bring him to Annas and then Caiaphas and they march him into the great Sanhedrin. Why did they march him into the great Sanhedrin? How do they know he didn't commit a civil offense? How do they know that he didn't commit a criminal offense for which he would have been sent to the lesser Sanhedrin? No, they sent him directly to the great Sanhedrin. That's important. The great Sanhedrin is like our Supreme Court. Do you think that if you get picked up on a a speeding ticket that your case is going to be assigned to the United States Supreme Court? You say, no, that's idiotic. Why would my case be assigned to the United States Supreme Court? They handle, I hate to say it this way, but they handle more important things. Okay. Now, the great Sanhedrin, there was only one. It was in Jerusalem. They met in the temple, in the uh, chamber of hewn stones. There were 71 members of the great Sanhedrin. There were 24 members who were the chief priests And you can look in 1 Chronicles how that David had devised that the chief priests would be assigned. So when you read about the chief priests coming to arrest Jesus, they were part of the people that were going to actually try him for the offense. So it consisted of 24 chief priests and 46 elders that were chosen from among, guess who? The scribes, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees. By the way, Annas was a Sadducee. He was not a Pharisee. And so that's who composed the great high priest or the great Sanhedrin. The high priest was the president of the great Sanhedrin. He was the overseer of the great Sanhedrin, and he was a voting member. Okay, who's the great high, who's the high priest presiding over the great Sanhedrin? Caiaphas, who's got a beef with Jesus, and, and said to the people, you guys ought to kill one person, put one person to death. Oh, let's make it Jesus. The great, or yes, the great Sanhedrin determined the most important affairs of the nation. They had extensive authority. Cases were brought to them on appeal from inferior courts, and they handled cases that dealt with any religious or uh, uh, worship matter. It's interesting to note as well. See if this, see if this begins to begins to make sense to you. The Great Sanhedrin was the only judicial body in the Jewish court system that was entrusted with capital punishment. <laughs> Folks, the fix is on. They go in and they arrest Jesus. Take him like he's a common criminal. In fact, we'll see next week, uh, or in weeks to come, they call him a malefactor. He's the scum of the earth. That's what that means. And he didn't do anything. But they determined that they were going to kill this guy. They come and arrest him. There's no charges. They don't take him to the civil court with three judges. They don't take him to the lesser Sanhedrin of 23 judges. They take him to the great Sanhedrin because they were able to hand out the death penalty. Now, all that we've considered this morning, we conclude with this third thought. This third thought in in looking at the main reason that Jesus' trial was illegitimate, it was a trial conducted to continue the conspiracy plot, this third thought, the payoff was a conviction for the crime of blasphemy. They got what they wanted. They got their guy. You know, sometimes, it's funny, I, I love to watch these crime shows and you know, you'll see these you'll see these defendants or people that are that are uh, you know supporting the defendant, and they say, "Well, that prosecutor got what he wanted. He was out to get this guy from the get go, and he got what he wanted. He got his pound of flesh. He got a conviction." I got to tell you, there's never been anybody of all the cases that I've seen where I said, "I got to get this guy." I don't even know these people. But they were out to get Jesus. This is reality. They got their guy. The payoff for all that they did was a, was a conviction for the crime of blasphemy. Now listen to Leviticus 24 and verse number 16. And he that blasphemeth the name of the Lord, he shall surely be put to death. 
And all the congregation shall certainly stone him. As well the stranger as he that is born in the land, when he blasphemeth the name of the Lord, shall be put to death. So, so here's what they do. They bring this guy in, Jesus, our Savior, who has done nothing amiss. They're trying to find something that they can make stick that is worthy of death. Oh, how about blasphemy? Blasphemy is worthy of death according to Leviticus. Now, this would have been the most readily available charge for them to convict Jesus of. Because Jesus, as you know, preached the truth. He said who he was. He preached the truth. He didn't hide it. And the Jewish, leader, Jewish religious leaders had heard him say many things that they considered to be blasphemy. So here we go. Here's how they're going to get him. Turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 26. If you're already there, we had turned here just a few moments ago. Matthew 26, verses 62 through 66. Matthew 26, verses 62 through 66. This is after they've had these high priests or these false witnesses come and say, yeah, we heard him say he's going to destroy the temple and build it again in three days. Notice verse 62. And the high priest arose and said unto him, Answerest thou nothing? What is it which these witnesses against thee? These witness against thee. But Jesus held his peace. And the high priest answered and said unto him, I adjure thee by the living God. What he's doing is he's placing him under oath. You are now placed under oath. You must testify at your own trial. Which, by the way, oh yeah, that's elite. Okay? I adjure thee by the living God that thou tell us whether thou be the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus saith unto him, Thou hast said. Nevertheless, I say unto you, Hereafter shall ye see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest rent his clothes, saying, He has spoken blasphemy. What further need have we of witnesses? Behold, now, uh, now we have heard his, his blasphemy. What think ye? They answered and said, He is guilty of death. There's your trial. That's the trial of Jesus. Oh, yeah, he said he's going to... He's going to rebuild the temple. He's going to tear the temple down and rebuild it in three days. And then, and then the, the high priest says, Well, you're, you're, tell us, are you the Son of God? And Jesus holds his peace. By the way, why did he hold his peace? That's a fulfillment of prophecy. Now let me put you in Jesus' shoes. You're sitting in your living room on your knees. You're, you're, you're in your living room on your knees praying in your prayer closet. Knock on the door. Actually, let's change. There's not even a knock on the door. Here comes the battering ram. They knock the door down. Guns at the ready. Tase you. Pick you up. Carry you to the jail. Once you're able to get your, your, your wits about you, you say, what's going on here? Shut up. Now you tell us, you tell us whether or not you killed this person. I have no idea what you're talking about. Well, were you in, in O'Fallon, Illinois last night? Yes, I lived. We have no further need of any witnesses. You're guilty. What would you do? Wait a minute. Let's call the, let's call the local news. Let's get the president on the line. I am innocent. Somebody's got to do something. I didn't commit this crime. Would you or would you not have that reaction? Don't tell me you'd sit there and say, well, this is all probably part of my Christian persecution, so I'm not going to say a word. Man, you'd be calling F. Lee Bailey and Perry Mason and Ben Matlock and every other attorney that you can think of. Man, you probably even called Clarence Thomas at this point. I didn't do this. I'm innocent. You ever read where Jesus did that? You ever read where Jesus said, I'm innocent. I didn't do anything. Folks, this is a fulfillment of a 700-year prophecy. In Isaiah 53, in verse number 7, He was oppressed and He was afflicted, yet He opened not His mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so He openeth not His mouth. Isaiah, 700 years before these events, prophesying of the suffering servant. And Jesus fulfills it to a T. They got what they wanted. They got their conviction. 
verse 66 what think ye they answered and said he's guilty of death well that's what they were they were going to get that they were going to get there now the case moves to the sentencing hearing they got what they wanted ah but you know what by the way whenever you hear somebody say criminals are smart some criminals are smart but they're usually pretty dumb and I say that after you know looking at case after case there are some that are smart there's no doubt about it but they're usually stupid Okay? And I'm not attacking anybody. It's just the truth of the matter. Okay. Now they got a problem. Because they just convicted Jesus of blasphemy, which is worthy of death, but guess what? They don't have the authority to put him to death. Now they got to send him to Pilate. And guess what happens when they send him to Pilate? Pilate conducts his own trial. And things are not as they seem. Well, Jesus was oppressed and afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Man, I've been giving you scripture after scripture, evidence after evidence, that Jesus not only was illegally arrested, but this trial was illegitimate. It was unlawful. What think ye of Christ? He opened not his mouth, but subjected himself to all of that for me that we might have forgiveness of sins with the Father wow I couldn't do what Jesus did nor would I but Jesus did what we looked this morning at the murder of Jesus is illegitimate trial we looked at the first main reason that his trial was illegitimate this trial was conducted to continue the conspiracy plot. They were going to put him to death, and they were going to find a reason to do it. Next week, Lord willing, we'll move into the second main reason, and that is that the trial circumvented the Jewish court procedure. We've touched on that, but I want you to get, get a grasp of how much so they perverted and twisted things, and that made it an illegitimate trial. Let's pray.